Before we go to the text and the structure of Luke 1 and 2, I want to make a correction and clarification of remarks I made at the end of last week's session. I mentioned James Edwards' commentary on the Gospel of Luke, which was published last year. It is a decent piece of work. But I suggested that he was uh, teaching at the University of Spokane, and there is no University of Spokane. I had forgotten that he's teaching at Whitworth University, which is also in Spokane, so I want uh, to correct that uh, error of memory. And the second thing was I was making comments about Roland Roland Menet's commentary entitled Luke Gospel of the Children of Israel, where Menet takes Israel in the sense that Paul takes the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, that is the new Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, or the eschatological Israel. And at that time, I made a contrastive statement with the massive commentary of Michael Walter in Germany, which has not been translated into English, but is being translated into English and will be published probably later this year by Baylor University Press. That comment was too confused, so I need to clarify uh, what uh, Walter's position is on Israel and his commentary. He takes what I call a more Old Testament Israel view of Jesus' kingdom. That is, he's suggesting a further restoration of the kingdom of Israel, but he's not doing it in typical premillennial or dispensational style. It's a little bit strange, but nonetheless, uh, he's uh, promoting an idea that the kingdom of Israel is still waiting restoration. And when that commentary is translated into English, there is certain to be more discussion of that point. I connected the two because Edwards' English commentary that came out last year is heavily dependent upon Volter, even though he's not slavishly dependent. And this particular point he doesn't seem to agree with, at least in my reading. So those two comments uh, behind us, let's turn our attention to the structure of Luke chapters 1 and 2. As we begin by looking at the structure of these two chapters of the infancy narratives from the standpoint of chronological historicity. So we begin with chapter 1, verse 5. We want to read this verse and then chapter 2, verse 1, and then chapter 3, verse 1, asking ourselves the question, what is Luke doing in these three instances? So if you have the the, uh, chapter open to the fifth verse of chapter 1, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now turn over to chapter 2, verse 1, a very famous passage which appears in the Christmas narrative. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. 
And now to chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Itrevia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. All right, so what is Luke doing in these three instances? Setting the historical background. How? That's correct. How is he setting the historical background? Okay, so he's using date marker and geographical marker to establish a narrative pattern. The date marker or era of Herod the Great in 1-5, Caesar Augustus into 1, Tiberius Caesar in 3-1, and he adds to that a geographical setting. Herod the Great, king of Judea, Caesar Augustus, of course, the emperor of Rome, and Tiberius Caesar in like manner, the succeeder to Caesar Augustus, emperor of Rome. <clears throat> He's using time and space for uh, historical uh, uh, chronology. He's giving us a chronological sequence, beginning with Herod, then going to Caesar Augustus, and then going to Tiberius Caesar. And he's also giving us a spatial framework. He's talking about the time of these individuals and when they reigned in the places or the geographical regions over which they had authority. And all of this is background to his narrative of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims when he begins to preach in Luke's gospel. So, beginning with 1.5 on your handout, in the days of Herod the Great. This is not just any Herod. This is Herod the Great who ruled in Judea from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. That's a traditional date, although that date is now up for grabs, particularly the date of his death. There are several significant scholarly articles which are arguing that he actually reigned until 1 B.C., this may seem uh, incidental and uh, innocuous to you, but in fact, it does affect very significantly the date of the birth of Jesus. So it is a matter which is uh, up for continued discussion. And we'll leave it aside for the moment, but just note that it is a matter under investigation. He is the king of Judea. And Judea, if you'll take the map number 244 that's in your packet, we can take a look at what Judea meant when Herod the Great was the ruler of that region. Let's see the geography of the kingdom into which Jesus was born. All right, he's called the king of Judea, but he actually controls Judea, Samaria and Galilee. Now, it's easy for you to pick out Galilee, which is above Judea, but in between is Samaria, and actually Herod rules over all three regions, though for purposes of Roman shorthand, he was called king of Judea, which was understood to include all these other three regions. 
Now, Luke also uses another little device. He uses the Greek word agenito uh, in these sections uh, to indicate it happened in the days of so-and-so it happened, or as the King James felicitously expressed it, it came to pass. So, once again, here's this time frame with respect to the region over which the individual is ruling. Well, what's the point of this? Well, the point is obviously to establish the era of Christ's birth, which is the era of the Jewish context of his own background, of his own uh, parentage, humanly speaking, and also of the appearance in the fullness of time in the history of redemption in the arena in which that fullness was to appear, namely the context of Jewish Judaism. Now, as Dick pointed out when he responded to my question a little earlier, there's also a historicity of the narrative which is being supported here. and Luke is anchoring his narrative in a concrete historical individual who ruled at a concrete period of time from 37 B.C. on to 4 or 1 B.C., and who ruled over a concrete space or geographical region, namely Judea. Now, in your handout packet, you also have a copy of a review that I wrote a few years ago about a book about Herod's architectural plans or his building plans, He's sometimes called Herod the Great Builder. In fact, that's the subtitle of this book. And so I've given you a copy of it that you can read uh, some of the less salient uh, features of Herod's career. Uh, For he was not only a great builder, he was also a great butcher. All right, now that brings us to chapter 2, verse 1 for the next chronologically historical uh, note. In the days of, and you can fill in the blank here, Caesar Augustus, and you will notice that Augustus became Caesar in 27 B.C. Following the collapse of the triumvirate, he was a part of the triumvirs with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Caesar assassinated in 44 B.C., and Mark Antony <clears throat> defeated by <clears throat> Octavian, which was Augustus's name before he became Caesar. <clears throat> Octavian, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, the triumvirs. <clears throat> and when, uh, when Mark Antony joined up with Cleopatra, then, uh, of course, Augustus defeated them and became sole ruler of Rome, the defeat at the Battle of Actium in 31 B.C., You'll notice that Augustus Caesar, or Octavian as he was known before he became Caesar Augustus, rules from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. And once again, in the Greek text of this first verse, Luke uses that agenito in the days of Caesar Augustus. It came to pass, or it happened, that a decree went out. Now, uh, you might be interested in the state of the Roman world at this time, and I've given you a map which divides up the Roman Empire into its various regions. 
uh, some of which will be recognizable to you. For instance, if you look at modern-day Turkey or ancient Asia Minor, you'll see the province of Galatia there outlined quite clearly. And that, of course, was the object of the epistle to the Galatians of the Apostle Paul. You'll notice above that, Bithynia and Pontus, which border the south end of the Black Sea. The Black Sea is that white space just above it, Bithynia and Pontus, to which Paul was directed not to go uh, at the beginning of his second missionary journey. And the Macedonian messenger, the Macedonian angel, uh, called him to come over to the Hellespont over to uh, Europe uh, at modern day, at ancient Thrace. And you also notice Cappadocia there in modern-day Turkey, uh, the Cappadocian region famous for the three great Cappadocian church fathers, uh, the great uh, heroes of the Eastern Orthodox communions, and actually they are heroes of all Christians in many ways because of their tremendous orthodoxy in defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, Basil the Great, Gregory Nazianzus, and Gregory Nyssa. And as you survey that map, you uh, are probably puzzled about uh, other regions uh, uh, according to the modern-day terminology, although when you look up in the upper left-hand corner, you see Britannia, and, of course, that's still Great Britain. South of that, Germania or Germany. Uh, Belgica, uh, which is Belgium, although it's a lot bigger there than it is today. Uh, to the west of Belgica, Lugdunensis, which is actually the region of Lyon, France, and that's what Lyon means in, in Latin. Uh, <clears throat> Rezia, which is uh, just between Belgica and Noricum. Rezia is actually the, la- <coughs> the Latin name for Switzerland. And Noricum, I'll ask my wife what Noricum is because she's been there. That's Austria. That's part of Austria, but uh, <coughs> but that's where... Uh, ancient Austria, that where modern Austria would have been. Then to the uh, right of that is Dacia, which is uh, Hungary and uh, part of Romania. At any rate, um, that's what the empire looked like at the uh, time of Caesar Augustus and also Tiberius Caesar, uh, far flung around the Mediterranean basin and up into Britain and to the east out to the Tigris-Euphrates Valley for the region which was called in those days Parthia. Well, what's the point of mentioning Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the Pax Romana, Romana, the Roman peace. Pax Romana lasted from Caesar Augustus's being crowned emperor or named emperor in 27 BC to the death of Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic emperor in 180 AD. Over 200 years of Roman peace in which for, for many years during that era, the doors of the temple of Janus were closed. Now, the Temple of Janus was a temple of uh, the god of the beginning of war. And Janus is described as having two faces. I don't know whether you can see this well enough, but that is a statue 
of uh, Janus uh, looking to the left and to the right. And because he was the god of the beginning of war, he was adapted to the Roman calendar and became known as a god of beginnings, the beginning of things, so the beginning of war and the beginning of other things. And eventually he was assigned the first month of the calendar, of the Roman calendar, and that's how we get the name January, from goddess Janus, who looks back to the old year and forward to the new year. Now, the significance of the fact that the doors of the Temple of Janus were closed during the Pax Romana means that for the most part, the Roman legions were not marching to war. There was no civil war. There were not great battles on the frontiers. The Roman legions were a peacekeeping or policing body, and the empire was, as I say, relatively at peace. Here's how John Milton puts it in his famous hymn on the morning of Christ's nativity. If you're not familiar with that beautiful Christmas poem, you ought to look it up on the Internet because it's a gorgeous piece of English rhetorical poetry. And here's how he describes that Pax Romana in his verse. No war or battle's sound was heard the world around The idle spear and shield were high uphung. The hooked chariot stood unstained with hostile blood. The trumpet spake not to the armored throng. And kings sat still with awful eye, as if they surely knew their sovereign lord was by. And now the contrast that Milton brings into the picture. But peaceful was the night wherein the prince of light his reign of peace upon the earth began. <clears throat> Jesus was born into an era of political and social peace, relatively speaking. Pax Romana, as one of the ancient writers said, the world was prepared for the coming of the Prince of Peace because Rome was undergoing the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana, when the Princeps Pacis arrives, when the Prince of Peace, Princeps Pacis, arrives on the stage of human history. So that's the point in part of mentioning Caesar Augustus. We want to think more deeply about why Luke does this, but nonetheless, we have a grasp of not just the historicity of the Pax Romana and the reign of Caesar Augustus, but we also have our hands on something which is an essential element of contrast in Luke's presentation. Now, I have a handout article on the Pax Romana that you can look up on the Internet there. I actually have some copies, which I'll be glad to offer to you as long as they last at the end of our study this evening. <clears throat> Uh, but I have a further elaboration of what I alluded to, namely why Luke is doing this, particularly in the case of Caesar Augustus, <clears throat> when it would appear that that doesn't have a whole lot to do with the message of the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. 
In fact, it does have something to do with it, or else he wouldn't have put his name in this chapter. All right, now that leaves the last date, and this one's the most precise of all. In chapter 3, verse 1, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Tiberius Caesar was adopted by Caesar Augustus to be his successor. And when Augustus died in 14 AD, Tiberius became the emperor of Rome and ruled until 37 AD. Now, in that verse, you will remember, or you will note if you have it open again, that Luke adds to Tiberius Caesar the name Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. We can date the rule of Pilate over Judea from 26 to 36 A.D. And you're interested to note that he rules only Judea. He does not rule over what Herod the Great ruled over when he was king of Judea, namely Samaria and Galilee. That is parceled out to others. And in fact, there were a series of rulers of Judea because Judea was more troublesome after the death of Caesar Augustus, actually before, after the death of Herod the Great, I should say. And there were a number of Roman governors who were installed to control uh, Judea and Jerusalem, and Pilate is the most recent one in the 15th year of Tiberius. As you can see, in the 15th year of Tiberius, Caesar would be 29 AD when uh, John the Baptist begins to preach at the Jordan. Now, in that verse 1, the Tetrarchs are named. There's Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. What does tetrarch mean? Well, the Greek word tetrarchos means four rulers. So four rulers here are Pontius Pilate, Herod, Antipas, as I'll explain in a moment, Philip, and Lysanias of Abilene. They uh, divided up or ruled over sections of uh, Palestine in this period, and if you'll take your map number 244, we can show you the geography of that reign. I'm sorry, 246, I apologize, not 244, 246, should be the next one in your packet. Now, Judea there with Jerusalem as its capital or center, is in its normal place. Herod, who is named here as a tetrarch, is actually Herod Antipas. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 3, he's called Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch of Galilee. And he rules over Galilee... Obviously, another region which his father, he is a son of Herod the Great, a region of which his father had ruled. He rules from 4 or 1 B.C., depending upon which date we accept for Herod the Great's death, until 39 A.D. He was fairly successful as a ruler and fairly 
well liked in terms of not creating any controversy beyond that which cost John the Baptist his head. Now, Philip is his brother, and he rules over Itraria and Traconitis, which are listed there. But he actually, and you can see Traconitis on the map, it's in the upper right-hand corner. But he actually rules over Bathania, which is next to Traconitis, and Paneus, which you cannot see on the map, but it's actually up near Caesarea at the top of the map. And Iturea, which is not labeled, is generally speaking in the region where that Golanitis is. So that region which got the dots on the map, it belongs to Philip, the uh, a tetrarch. And finally, Lysanias, who rules over Abilene, as the text reads, is a bit of a mystery. He may have died in 36 A.D. Uh, Very little is known about him because nothing is said much about him in the ancient records. And when Luke says Abilene, he may be referring to a place called Abila, which is northwest of Mount Hermon, which is not on your map, which is above uh, Caesarea at the top of uh, that region of Golanitis or Paneus. Once again, in this third chapter, Luke uses that Greek word, agenito, it came to pass. And we ask, uh, what's the point? We've seen time and space with respect to uh, Herod. Uh, We've seen time and space with respect to Caesar Augustus, the Pax Romana, and the era of the Roman Empire. We have time and space here once again. We have a precise date, the 15th year of the reign of the Roman emperor, which is 29 A.D., that precise time in in this gospel. And the space is once again the Roman Empire, including a fairly wide swath of Judea and Galilee, and Iturea, etc. In other words, there's a very broad region here of Palestine, both Cis-Palestine and Transjordanian Palestine, uh, with respect to the Great Rift Valley, which comes down past the Sea of Galilee and into the Jordan River to the Dead Sea. All right, any questions about um, this brief rundown of... <clears throat> the chronological historicity and these names. They're here for purposes of uh, defending the historicity of the narrative, but they're also here for purposes of theological significance. So let's consider, oh, and I have another article on Tiberius Caesar, which uh, is uh, there at the bottom of uh, 3.1. If you're interested in looking it up on the Internet, or again, I'll have some extra copies uh, after the session this evening, so you're welcome to pick up a copy or two. Yes, Scott. Um, Where exactly, I'm sorry, did you say that Lysanias was supposedly reigned based upon what happened? It's difficult to know who he is. Okay, so I think the one reference is to some 
uh, Roman inscription, and there's a name that appears to be similar to his. So Luke is giving us information that is unique, at least to date. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that Luke is not credible. He obviously knows better than our modern research has been able to discover. <clears throat> and so there's speculation as to when Lysanias lived. And in this monument or in this inscription, as I recall <clears throat> reading about it, <clears throat> something about this person either dying or it being the end of his career and so they, they think this may be the same pe person Luke is referring to. And <clears throat> Abilene is unknown from ancient geographical uh, records and sources. Josephus doesn't mention it. Uh, <clears throat> so once again, that's another mystery. But it's possibly similar to this Abila, which is known and is near uh, <clears throat> Mount Hermon. So that's the reason for the questions about that one, uh, that, that's the most mysterious of the names, at least so far in Luke's gospel. All right, well, let's consider another uh, pattern then. We considered the structure based upon uh, chronology or anchoring the events in the first three chapters in the chronology of the rulers of a Jewish Palestine and of the Roman Empire in which Jewish Palestine exists. So that's one way of structuring it. We could structure the beginning of the gospel. We could structure these infancy narratives in terms of that chronology. We could actually say that the agenito, it came to pass, is a recurring motif which actually delimits the structure of the infancy narratives. That, that is a possibility. And it's not the only possibility. Okay? Luke may be doing uh, more than one thing. Uh, so, uh, in trying to, uh, to think after Luke himself and trying to fathom uh, what his literary and rhetorical style is doing, it may be multiform. Now, you may have a number of structuring patterns here, but let's take a look at the next possibility which is at the bottom of the first page of your handout, consider then narrative foreshadowing as a structuring pattern. All right, now let's consider this with respect to the three ruler individuals, Herod, <coughs> Caesar Augustus, and Tiberius Caesar. Let's begin with Herod. <coughs> the foreshadowing occurs here with Herod as king of Judea which is the place of Christ's what? David, you got a smile on your face. It's the place of Christ's what? True, but we're not there yet. These are the infancy narratives. It's the place of his birth. It is also the place of his what? Foreshadowing. It is the place of his death. Okay? So, is Luke, by mentioning Herod, king of Judea, not only tying Jesus to the era of Herod, but also bookending Judea as the place of the beginning and end of the life of Jesus 
of Nazareth. And you will notice that he has the two rulers who are involved in the beginning and end of Jesus' life. Pilate, the governor of Judea, in chapter 3, anticipating the end of Christ's life. Of course, we know Pilate presided over his trial. And Herod, at the beginning of his life, when he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. So, there is a Judean bookend. Luke is foreshadowing by the mention of the geographical region, ruled over by Herod, ruled over by Pontius Pilate. He is foreshadowing the events which occur in them of significance, namely the birth of this infant and the death of this man. A bookend device, Judea 1.5, Judea 3.1, a bookend device foreshadowing in 1.5, the birth of the child, in 3.1, the death of the man. All right, so much for Herod in terms of a foreshadowing device. What about Caesar Augustus? Well, Imperial Rome of Augustus and Tiberius is the era, as we've already said, of the Pax Romana. Pax Romana is spelled P-A-X and then Roman with an A-N-A at the end. Roman with an A on the end, I'm sorry, Romana. Right, now, if this is a foreshadowing device, Augustus and Tiberius, who are both part of the Pax Romana, are also a part of the era into which Christ was born and dies. A bookend, then, of the Roman imperial regimes at the time Jesus was born as an infant and the time Jesus was crucified as a man. He was born in the days of Augustus Caesar. He was crucified and died in the days of Tiberius Caesar. Is Luke using a foreshadowing device by mentioning the two Caesars? extremely important for him because he begins the narrative of each of those sections with the names of these Caesars. So it's not incidental. It's not merely a historical detail. It has theological punch to it. It has structural significance to it. He's doing this on purpose because he's framing his narrative. All right, well, what about the Roman Imperium? When we say the Roman Imperium, we mean the imperial extent of the Roman Empire. Well, once again, it's the same individuals, Caesar Augustus and Tiberius Caesar, which are the rulers of the world or the rulers of the arena in which Christ proclaims the kingdom of God. Now, the first time that Jesus preaches the kingdom of God in Luke's gospel is in verse 13, verse 43, rather, of chapter 4, after he reads Isaiah 61 in the synagogue at Nazareth. So, Jesus' first sermon comes late in Luke's gospel. That is, it comes 
long after the beginning. It comes very soon after the beginning of Mark's gospel. It occurs in the first chapter. It comes very soon in Matthew's gospel. It comes in the third chapter. But in Luke's gospel, it comes late. In other words, Luke builds up to this deliberately and holds off on the name for the gospel proclamation of Christ as the kingdom of God. And he never calls it the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not preach the kingdom of heaven in Luke's gospel. That doesn't mean that Luke didn't know that. But Luke chooses to call the proclamation message of Jesus the preaching of the kingdom of God. We want to ask ourselves why he does that and think about that as we go forward. One thing is interesting as well. If you hold your finger there in Luke 1, if you're still there or wherever you are in Luke's gospel, and turn over to the book of Acts, keeping in mind that Luke writes both books, Luke-Acts. The last chapter of the book of Acts which ends with Paul in verse 16 of chapter 28 in Rome. And then what's he doing in Rome? Staying two full years in his own rented quarters, verse 30. And welcoming all who came to him. He was allowed to have visitors. And preaching what? What's Paul preaching? Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Notice, it is the kingdom of God that Luke ends his two-volume work with. Even as it is the kingdom of God that Jesus begins preaching in the Gospel of Luke. When Jesus begins his work, he preaches the kingdom of God in Luke's Gospel. When Luke, when Paul concludes his work in Rome, he's preaching the kingdom of God in Rome. It is the same bookend to the two volumes. To the two works of Luke relative to the beginning and end of both. So, if the foreshadowing element is here, then what Luke has done in mentioning the kingdom of God associated with the era of imperial Rome is to bring that kingdom of God right into the heart of imperial Rome. The apostle who brings the preaching of the kingdom of God to the center of the capital of the world at the end of his career. In other words, the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God that the apostles complain, uh, proclaim, particularly the apostle Paul of Tarsus, who preaches in his last sermon in the book of Luke Acts preaches the kingdom of God in Rome, capital of the Imperium Romanum. All right. Now, there's another way to look at this structuring pattern. That is to consider these elements of the rulers so named in terms of narrative contrast, even, I am bold to say, narrative antithesis. For instance, 
Why even mention Herod the Great? The butcher of Bethlehem. The man who ordered all male children under two years of age killed. Stabbed with a sword. Rendered lifeless on their mother's breasts. Why would he even mention such a person? Is it to draw a stark contrast between the butcher of Bethlehem and the giver of life who is this child whom God preserves from the butcher and does not deal out death but deals out life, including life eternal? Is the antithesis stark then between Herod the Great and the subject of this gospel, namely, the bringer of everlasting life. It is possible that that theological motif is in the back of Luke's mind. But even if it isn't, it is possible to derive it from the text. It's possible to see it in the stark contrast. Herod the Great is not a hero. He is just an historical figure who sets a pattern. A pattern of abuse of power. A pattern of manipulation of deceit. A pattern of murder. He had blood on his hands. A pattern which is increasingly prominent in modern day politics. A pattern which is creeping into modern day political Lore and program, policy, determination. Herod the Great would make these modern day proponents and practicers of this manipulative butchery look like children, child's play. But of course, if they get their hands on bombs, it's a different issue. But it's the same old game. It's the game of tyrants playing power politics. It's the game of political parties playing power politics. It's the game of those who want to control how you live and how you will spend your freedom under their thumb and take that freedom right away from you so that if you're stupid enough to vote for them and put them back into office, you deserve what you get. Because if you prize your freedom at all, you will certainly know what's being done to you under the screws of the political power brokers of this age. And as I say, in many ways, they really have nothing on Herod the Great. He murdered one of his wives. He murdered two of his sons. He was a real tyrant. Well, the contrast here could be between the real significance of Herod and the real significance of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what about Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus eventually took the title Divi Filius, which means son of the divine or son of a god. 
Caesar Augustus is the son of God? Is Luke suggesting, knowing that, of course, that's what Augustus Caesar claimed, is Luke suggesting that there is an antithesis between this imperial son of a god claiming to be such and the very son of God incarnate? Yes, it is possible. It's possible to set up the name Caesar Augustus here at the beginning of the birth narrative of chapter 2 in order to draw that radical antithesis between the claim of the human Roman emperor to be a son of a god and the one who really is. Not the fake, not the charlatan, not the one who claims it because he's got thousands of Roman legionnaires behind him and that's the only way he can get away with saying it. Or the one who is it. Because he has the power to do what no Caesar could do. He can even raise the dead. Well, Augustus Caesar then stands in stark contrast to Jesus of Nazareth, to the babe of Bethlehem. And Tiberius Caesar? Tiberius Caesar claimed to be the savior of the nation, the savior of the Roman Empire. He claimed the title soter in Greek, which in Greek means savior, and was addressed as such. Is Luke then signaling by Tiberius' name in chapter 3, verse 1, a radical antithesis between this erstwhile savior, small s, and the Savior, capital S, who is Jesus of Nazareth. Christ in time, by way of contrast or narrative antithesis. In other words, these time markers, these time and place markers, which Luke has at the opening of these initial three chapters, these time and place markings are a underscoring of the antithesis to the time of the rulers of this age, Jewish and Gentile, Judean and Roman. And Christ in space, Christ in space, a space in which his life is folded, folded into the space of God's act, acts in past redemptive history. Luke will attach Jesus to the Old Testament prophecies in a dramatic way. He will even do it here in these infancy narratives as we will see. He will fill up. He will fill up these two chapters with allusions and quotations from the Old Testament. He will overwhelm us with them. Because Christ's whole ethos, his whole being, his whole existence is packed into that Old Testament redemptive historical imagery. Into that space, that Old Testament redemptive historical space,
Christ himself will be folded. In that space, something new arises. Something new is revealed about the space which overarches all history. The space which overarches all history from the creation to the consummation. Something is being declared. Is that the reason Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam? Chapter 3? Is that the reason that it goes all the way back to Adam? He's the only one that does that. The space that Jesus occupies is the space which goes all the way back over Judea in the days of Herod the Great and Caesar Augustus, Judea in the days of Tiberius Caesar, all the way back to creation and all the way forward to the consummation. Into this space, in this earthly space of Luke's gospel, Jesus displays, Jesus reveals, Jesus teaches, Jesus performs the role of one who belongs to an eternal space. A timeless space. A space where there is no end to the dimension. That's who has been born. That's who grows up. That's who sits in the temple. That's who comes to John the Baptist at the Jordan. That's who stands up in the synagogue at Nazareth and reads Isaiah 61. That's the one who performs me. That's the one who goes to the cross. That's the one who is not in a tomb anymore. That's the one who sits at the right hand in that eternal space. Into this space, an eternal person of timeless and eternal spaceless dimension has come. And that turns the whole world upside down. That turns the whole world upside down. And still does. For the believers in that one eternal person who dwells in eternal timeless space because he is the eternal image and substance of his Father. All right, we'll take a little break now. And we'll come back and take a look at some broader patterns in these first two chapters. All right, picking up from where we left off. Now considering the structure of the first two chapters of Luke's Gospel from the pattern of narrative symmetry or narrative repetition. Now here you will observe that there are parallel or symmetrically repeated paradigms which I've listed in two forms. 
but the similarity is apparent regardless of the one or alternative of these. The Annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist is the first full narrative in the Gospel and is followed by the Annunciation of the birth of Jesus Christ. So there is a symmetry of Annunciation. And the same angel is involved in that symmetry of announcing. We'll look at that in detail later. However, there is a response to the respective annunciations. Elizabeth and Mary speak, and in Mary's speech in Elizabeth's presence, the first of the Lucan hymns or Christmas hymns of Luke's gospel, the Magnificat, appears. Now, having announced the birth of the two characters, then Luke follows with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. But he adds an additional hymn, second of Luke's Christmas hymns, the Benedictus at the birth of John the Baptist, and the Gloria or Gloria in Excelsis at the birth of Jesus. The hymns are a part of the chorus of exaltation, the song of the soul. The voice of the heart, reflecting upon what God has done, not only in announcing the birth, but in giving the birth. Now, there's another response to the birth narratives. This time, it's two individuals once more. Simeon and Anna, who respond to the birth, particularly of Jesus, and Simeon gives the last of Luke's Christmas hymns, the Nunc Dimittis, which is the Latin for, now your servant may depart. Servant is not in the Dimittis, it comes afterwards in the Latin term. Magnificat, magnificat means my soul magnifies the Lord. Benedictus, blessed be the Lord. And Gloria, just as in English, glory be to God. All right, so you'll notice the pattern is a symmetry of annunciation for both John the Baptist and Christ and a response to that annunciation a response out of the realization that Elizabeth and Mary are going to become pregnant. Then Luke follows with the birth of the two. It's been announced they're going to be born now. He describes their birth and a response, particularly to the birth of Jesus, from Simeon and Anna. 
the act of God, response to the act of God, the act of God, singing in response to God's act, the declaration of song in choir, in assembly, even in individual or private voice. Now, the end of the infancy narrative in chapter 2 has Jesus sitting in the temple talking to the scribes and priests or the doctors of Judaism. But you'll notice that in that narrative, Christ is surrounded by a pattern of symmetry. That is, it's a description of his character. He's growing in chapter 2, verses 39 to 40, and that's repeated at the end of the temple scene, chapter 2, verse 52. So we actually have a duplication centered around Jesus in the temple. The only narrative from his childhood that survives Interesting that no narrative from John the Baptist's childhood survives. We don't have a story about John the Baptist at age 12 or age 20. We only have the one story of Jesus at age 12. So from the time he is a babe and then 40 days old after that to the time he is 12, silence, And from the time he is 12 to the time he is 30, silence, because Luke in chapter 3 will give us a suggestion of the age of Jesus when he begins his public ministry. He was about 30 years old. So we have these periods of blank silence, broken by one 12-year-old scene. We'll have to ask ourselves why when we get there. Why only this scene from Jesus' childhood, teenage years, early adulthood, and nothing from John the Baptist's childhood, teenage years, and early adulthood? Because John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. He's about 30 and a half when he begins to preach at the Jordan. All right. What is not there is as important as what is there. What is left out is as important as what is included. It is done for a reason. Luke's creative Juices omit. Now, I'm not claiming that he knew a lot about Jesus' childhood, but he only chooses to record one, and Matthew, Mark, and John record none. Mark doesn't even record the birth. Mark breaks forth with Jesus preaching after he's baptized and gets right to it. He skips over the whole infancy youth, 
childhood, etc. Why? You have to ask yourself this kind of question. And John, John doesn't do anything about the birth narrative either. Once again, Jesus appears at the Jordan, and that's where it starts. And Matthew, Matthew has a birth narrative. But he says nothing about Jesus' youth. Oh, yes, he says he goes down into Egypt. And so he spent some years there. But we know nothing about what he did when he was there. And he says he went to Nazareth. But we know nothing from Matthew about what he did in Nazareth. Until he breaks forth in his preaching ministry. Now, it is, of course, true that the life of Christ explodes in his miraculous and teaching, preaching ministry. That is true. That's the heart of what he's about. That's the heart of what he's showing. And that's the most important part. I acknowledge that. But Luke gives us this 12-year-old story. And he gives it to us in a structured way. He gives it to us in a framed symmetry pattern. He gives it to us in a way that should grab our attention and cause us to ask, now Luke, you patterned this thing in symmetrical lines. You began and ended it reciprocally, reiteratively, reduplicatively. You did that and then you stuck Jesus at 12 years of age right in the middle of it in the temple. Why did you do that, Luke? Oh, you say, I never thought about it. Well, you don't have that excuse anymore. If you're reading your Bible, you should be thinking about these kinds of questions of what is there. What are you reading? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these people wrote it. But what are they writing? Are they just writing little lines for you to satisfy your daily Bible reading? Is that it? Or is there real creativity here? Is there real theological creativity here? In other words, there's a poignancy in the way it's written, the way it's structured, the way it flows. It's there as theological power to vitalize your life, to empower your Christian walk, to give you information about your Savior which is beyond the obvious Sunday school lesson that Jesus was 12 years of old when he got lost in the temple. End of the story. No, 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 no. You haven't even begun to think about the story if that's all you've got. All right. There's an alternative way of listing this pattern, and you can see it at the bottom of the handout labeled alternative where we place the enunciation side by side. The parallelism then is horizontal. But the last unit remains the same as it was above. The sandwich of Jesus in the temple between the declarations that he grew in stature and in wisdom and in favor with God and man. All right, well, let's scratch the surface a little bit on the significance of the parallel narratives here. 
Luke has done this intentionally. He structured these two chapters intentionally in terms of this symmetry. He's done it. It's there. You can't erase it from the Bible, from the text. It's there. So, do these parallel narratives suggest parallel personalities? Are the characters in these narratives parallel? Is John the Baptist parallel to Jesus of Nazareth? Well, you know the answer to that. No. Absolutely not. Well, then, there is a non parallel, as they say in French. There is a non parallel purpose in this duplication. In other words, Luke is parallel these parallel paralleling these narratives in order to demonstrate that Jesus is not parallel to John the Baptist. There is one personality, one character in this section who is without parallel. And that is your Savior Jesus who stands out from this symmetry. In other words, he's used the symmetry to make a theological point. He's used the symmetry to show you that Jesus is unsurpassed. He is unparalleled. Not even John the Baptist, who's the greatest of all men, born among women. Not even John the Baptist is like Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you see it? You see the way I've set it up? I've set it up for you so you'll get it. Don't be so dumb as you don't see it. No, I'm not insulting you with that. I'm pleading with you. Will you look beyond the obvious? Will you look down into the heart of God, which is reflected in the heart of Luke, who is reading the heart of Jesus and his powerful, magnificent, almighty person? And he's putting it right in front of your face by standing him right alongside John the Baptist so you will see the eternal difference. A unique and unduplicated person is here. A singular and unparalleled person is here, even as there's a singular and unparalleled narrative here. And it climaxes with Jesus' visit to the temple when he's 12 years of age. Ah, ah, do you see it? Do you begin to see it? the unparalleled character who is between those Jewish doctors, the singularly unique 12-year-old who is in the midst of those scribes and learned teachers. Yes. Yes. The structure of the two chapters in its symmetry Features and 
pulls out dramatically the unparalleled uniqueness of Jesus as a child, Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Unparalleled. Though you can parallel him with John the Baptist and others who grow from babies to 12-year-old boys. All right. We've exhausted the basic overview of the structural patterns which are possible for these first two chapters. Well, let's put it this way. My brain has exhausted them, which doesn't mean that my brain has got them all. There may be others here that I've missed. But that's enough for you to rejoice, not only in the inspiration of the Spirit, but in the marvelous literary and theological ability of Luke. I've said it to the, I said it to you over and over again about the writers of this book who we call the Bible. These people are geniuses. They're literary geniuses. They're rhetorical geniuses. They're theological geniuses. They're structural geniuses. They are geniuses. And don't reduce them to your daily Bible reading. I'm not saying don't do your Bible, but will you start to read the Bible as if there's genius there? And not just get your little coping device for the day out of it. I hath not seen what depth of riches there are here, even in the written scriptures. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what's in this book. We haven't begun. We're still worse than amateurs. Out of the depths, says the psalmist, out of the depths of the magnificent mind and heart and will and grace and love of God and his magnificent person, have we begun to touch the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Have you begun to understand how that person changes your life, enables and empowers your life, and draws your life into his own? Have you, do you even sit down and think about that? It's your life, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, your life has been taken captive by the life of God, creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of angels in high places of heaven, and the central radiance and life of that golden city. Sit down and think about it. Just sit down quietly in your chair and think about it. The life of God, my life joined to the life of God, not to the person of God, not to his being, but joined to his life. What would that mean? 
How extensive would that be? How rich and profound would it be? Paul couldn't describe it. Couldn't even put it into human words. Couldn't even speak Greek about it. Do you think about it? Do you even think about it? Well, I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to meditate upon what it means for the life of God to be gifted to you, for your life to be infused with the life of God himself, drawn into it by the bond of faith and the covenant of grace. Well, there's another page there, but we didn't get to it. So we'll do it again next week, but you don't need to bring it back because I'll repeat it in the handout for the next time. Now, before before you leave, Oh, yes, there's a question back there in the back from the peanut gallery. Okay, after all this about Christ being more than John the Baptist, did you answer why we have Jesus growing in DNA that tells what he did in E? He did in I'm not understanding. He did in E. Did in E. Jesus in the temple. You said there was a sandwich there, but do you know what the purpose of? Oh yeah, yeah. I I suggest I suggested that the purpose is in the unparalleled character of the character that's there. In other words, as the rest of that symmetry demonstrates the unparalleled character of Christ's life. So that incident in the temple is also suggesting the unparalleled character. In other words, there's no one in that temple who's the parallel with him. Right. The fact that nothing is explained before and after, what's the significance of that? Well, it is explained before and after. The statement is made that frames that temple appearance and that temple narrative is that he grows in knowledge and in favor with God and man. That the growth of Jesus is a phrase which is parallel in 39 to 40 and in 52. Do you know any of his life from those two parables? Only he grew up as a normal human being would grow up, but also he grows up with the favor of God upon him, an unparalleled favor of God upon him. So that's the purpose of them? That, that, that's the most purpose I'm going to give you right now. You have to see the end of the movie, dear. My wife has this habit of asking me, how's this going to turn out once we're watching a movie? I say, watch the movie. So, 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 so tonight I'm saying, you're going to have to be here when I talk about Jesus in the temple for me to flesh out more of it. Okay, now, some of you are familiar and may have read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. But very few of you have read the other allegory that he wrote called The Holy War, which is even better than Pilgrim's Progress. I have in my hand 
children's versions of both of these allegories. Pilgrim's Progress, Dangerous Journey, and The Holy War, Man's Soul. I have children's versions which have beautiful illustrations. Children are fascinated with this, I know, because my grandchildren sit while I I read it to them on the Sabbath day. Man's Soul is the title of the Holy War uh, allegory in this version, which also has illustrations and pictures and has a map of Mansoul. These illustrations aren't as well done as the one in Dangerous Journey, but an illustrated version is better than no version for children. And even for old people like ourselves who haven't read it or haven't read it in a long time, and a children's abridged version would do us good because reading Bunyan is good for your soul. At any rate, in the back of this uh, Mansoul version, which is a story of Mansoul created by Shaddai, King Shaddai, uh, captured by Diabolos, and delivered by Prince Emmanuel. That's roughly the story of the allegory. In, in the back of this, this, this has a, a description of the meaning of all the imagery in the allegory, in the story. So you can turn to the back if you're not figuring out what, what, you know, who is the Lord understanding? What does that mean? And it gives you scripture references for, uh, for the answers. So, uh, why am I suggesting, uh, that you get these? Well, if you have grandchildren, they'll love it. And particularly if you sit down and read it to them. Or, if you read to your wife, this would be something to read to them, chapter at a time. They're very well done. Um, there is a DVD version of this. Don't waste your money. Okay, they're in print. You go to Amazon.com and you can order them online. And I'm encouraging you to think about it for your own sake. For instance, I'm reading this to my wife now, and uh, we're, we've, we have read the full version of Holy War and Pilgrim's Progress, but we're kind of reviewing it with this and. Uh, this is a shorter uh, version, and we've got pictures. Well, we don't have pictures in the in the full book, so you know we're like kids too. <clears throat> uh, and and even if you're not interested in, in it, Christmas par- presents for your grandchildren, or pr- Christmas parents for your children, to read to their children, or to read somebody else. At any rate, they're very well done. And this one just came into print. This has never been done before. It's only a year old. I just found out about it, and I was very pleased to be. So if you don't know, if you know Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Progress, and you think, well, that's the best allegory, read this one. You'll be amazed at how good this is. It is really remarkable. Okay, there's my paid advertisement. They're not expensive. They're about $30. So that's average for illustrated literature these days. And... You're dismissed.